Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. The Senate is broken. The filibuster has become a tool of tyranny of the minority, and almost nothing can get done unless a supermajority of senators agree to it. To discuss how we got here and how we can fix it, I've invited Adam Gentleson to the podcast. He is the author of Kill Switch, The Rise of the Modern Senate, and The Crippling of American Democracy. Democrats swept the Senate races in the traditionally red state of Georgia. Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff's victories mean that the Democrats will take control of the Senate. There does remain this thing called the filibuster, which the Republicans will try to use whenever possible. That's why it took Obama 60 votes, not 50, to pass the ACA. Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema have said under no circumstances will they participate in turning the Senate into the House. The legislative filibuster in the Senate is standing in the way of getting you and the rest of the country a $15 an hour federal minimum wage, something that has not been updated in this country since 2009. And I love this story, and so I'm going to read it to you. Sam, I am. That Sam, I am. That Sam, I am. I do not like that Sam, I am. Do you like green eggs and ham? My name is Adam Gentleson. I'm the author of the book Kill Switch, The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy. And I'm fighting to abolish the filibuster and restore democracy. Sorry, not sorry. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited to have you to discuss the filibuster. So I want to start by asking you to give an explanation of exactly what the filibuster is to my listeners. Sure. So the filibuster is not what you think it is. Let's start there. It is not Jimmy Stewart standing on the floor of the Senate holding up a bill as the underdog fighting powerful interests. What it is today is simply a way for any senator to raise the number of votes that are required to pass a bill from a simple majority, which in today's Senate of 100 people is would be 50 or 51, up to 60 votes. That's all it is. It is. It doesn't require any speeches. It doesn't require any debate. It doesn't even require anybody to go to the floor. All they have to do is send an email or have their staff send an email to their partisan political leaders. And the number of votes that it takes to pass any bill before the Senate, or at least most bills, can go from the simple majority, where it was for the first 200 plus years of the Senate's existence, up to 60 votes. And so in short, this is why our government is gridlocked. This is why we can't pass anything, because any bill that has to become a law has to go through the United States Senate. Most bills today, especially after the leadership of Senator McConnell, face this kind of silent filibuster that simply raises the number of votes it takes to pass something. And most bills in this partisan polarized age can't get 60 votes to pass. Sometimes they can get bipartisan votes. They can get 50, 55, something like that. But getting 60 is really difficult these days. So this is why we don't have common sense solutions to things like climate change, gun control, income inequality. We have the solutions. They exist. Many of them have bipartisan support, but they can't get 60 votes in the Senate. And so they fail. It's just mind boggling. Talk about taking something that 
that is logical and simple and making it complex. And no wonder the Senate is broken. Let's go back a little bit. Let's go back a lot of bit. How did the filibuster come to be? Is it true that it came out of the work of Aaron Burr? It did, actually. What Aaron Burr did was he made uh, a loophole that made the filibuster possible. And I think what's really important for your listeners to understand is that the filibuster, as much as we think of it as a definitional part of the Senate, the filibuster was not part of the original Senate. In fact, someone had tried to invent it at the time, the framers probably would have opposed it. They invented the Senate to be a thoughtful counterpart to the House, you know, so the more rough-and-tumble chamber. They wanted the Senate to be more deliberative, more thoughtful, to take its time with issues. But they didn't want there to be debate that could go on forever. They created specific rules that were available to bring debate to an end. They had different kinds of norms and and traditions that were used to sort of let a senator know that their time was up. Everybody would start talking over the senator, like the music coming up at the Oscars or something. They would maybe open the doors to the chamber to just let them know that people were done with what they had to say. And then there was a specific rule they had on the books. If talking over people didn't work or opening the doors to the chamber didn't work, there was a rule that would let a majority of senators vote to cut off a debate and essentially end a filibuster if it had gone on for too long. Besides garnering media attention, filibusters seem like a waste of time. So what is a filibuster exactly? Well, that is what they are, a waste of time. Basically, a filibuster is any procedural action that delays a vote in the Senate. The most well-known examples of filibusters are when a senator or group of senators takes the Senate floor for a speech and does not yield it until three-fifths of the Senate agree to end that filibuster. That's the rule that Aaron Burr recommended the Senate get rid of. He didn't recommend that they get rid of it because he thought the Senate should have unlimited debate. He recommended that they get rid of it because no one used it at the time. Obstruction was not a major problem in the original Senate. Senators considered it beneath their dignity to talk in an obstructionist way, to try to delay their colleagues. They, you know, prided themselves on having a thoughtful debate and they would speak until they'd had their say, but then they wouldn't sit down. Imagine that, exactly. And so in 1806, Aaron Burr had just presided over an impeachment trial, actually, and he made a series of recommendations where he said, let's clean up your rule books a little bit. Let's streamline things. It's very confusing. One of the recommendations he made was to get rid of this rule. So that didn't create the filibuster, but it created a loophole because now there was no formal way to end debate once it started. It took several decades for people to even realize this loophole existed. But then John Calhoun, senator from South Carolina, the sort of spiritual godfather of the Confederacy, came along. And he realized that this loophole existed. And he started to create what we would identify today as the original talking filibuster. And so he started giving long speeches and claiming that he was doing this in defense of free speech and the minorities, unlimited debate in the Senate, all the sort of things that we hear today in defense of the filibuster. Uh, And so he took this loophole that had been created by Aaron Burr and he turned it into the talking filibuster. And that is how it began. This wasn't until the 1830s, 1840s. So this was 50 or 60 years after the Senate was created and after most of the framers had passed away. It was not an original feature. It was brought into being because John Calhoun needed a way to increase the power of the constituency that he represented, which was slaveholders, to prevent the gradual abolition of slavery that was happening at the time. So that's its origin. It was the the need to empower a numerical minority of senators against the steady march of progress. And often, that specifically, the progress they were trying to prevent was efforts to alleviate the suffering of Black Americans. First, the abolishment of slavery in the middle of the 19th century, and then later the first rudimentary efforts at civil rights in the early 20th century in the Jim Crow era. 
Okay. I want to unpack all of that a little bit more thoroughly. So tell me the link between the filibuster and white supremacy, and then how did it come to be associated with Jim Crow? So the link is essentially that throughout our history, there were times when a majority was bent on progress for civil rights or abolition. And a minority, a numerical minority, not a racial or ethnic minority, a numerical minority wanted to stop that majority from making progress. And so they needed to increase their power. That is why Calhoun innovated this talking filibuster in the 19th century. But the talking filibuster was useful only for delay. There were no rules on the books that would allow you to actually stop a bill altogether. He made very clear that his explicit goal was to try to give the minority a veto over anything the majority wanted to do. But the rules at the time still heavily prevailed on the idea of majority rule. And so the best he could do was create this tool to delay bills. And you could basically delay as long as the filibusters themselves could go on. So it's dependent on the stamina of the people using it at the time. Eventually, they had to sit down and shut up, and then the majority could prevail. There was no way to raise the number of votes that it took to pass a bill. So if you could persuade people to come over to your side, you could maybe block it. But if you couldn't win the argument, you lost it, and the bill that you were trying to block came up for a simple majority vote and passed or failed on that basis. I mean, so fast forward to Jim. Yeah, so it's, it's that that was the original connection. But then there was an even stronger connection in the Jim Crow era because in 1917, a rule was introduced that put a supermajority threshold on the books for the first time. And this supermajority threshold was intended to end the filibuster, essentially what was an attempt to restore the rule that they had gotten rid of at Aaron Burr's direction in 1806. But instead of allowing a majority to end debate, as that rule had done, they said it had to be a supermajority to end debate. This was at a time when it was still traditional for the majority to yield. And the idea was that a reasonable supermajority of senators could come together and say, okay, we've heard enough, wrap it up, let's move on to debate. What Southern white supremacist senators started to do was use that supermajority threshold and turn it into the de facto vote for passage, but only on civil rights bills. The filibuster itself uh, ought to be modified and not be able to apply to civil rights and voting rights. That's what was used to deny uh, black folks uh, the vote. It was denied, uh, it was used by Strom Thurmond from South Carolina back in 1957 uh, to fight the Civil Rights Act of 1957. We know uh, that there is a difference uh, between denying people constitutional rights and extending the debate. And what's really important to understand is that civil rights bills could have passed at this time. The House of Representatives was passing anti-lynching laws and anti-poll tax laws by large majorities starting in the 1920s. These bills were coming over to the Senate where they had majority support in the Senate and they had presidents of both parties who were ready to sign them. So we could have passed anti-lynching laws and anti-poll tax laws as early as the 1920s and 30s. But the Southern senators, in order to maintain white supremacy, started taking this rule and making civil rights bills have to clear a supermajority threshold and turning this vote to end debate at a supermajority threshold into the de facto vote on passage of the bill. But from the end of Reconstruction in 1877 until 1964, when we passed the first major civil rights bill, the only bills that were killed by the filibuster and made to clear this higher threshold were civil rights bills. Holy shit. So why does it still exist? We've dismantled so much of Jim Crow laws and practices, if not enough of their 
effects. But why do we still have the filibuster? What happened is between the 60s and about the 2000s, people started to use the filibuster for other issues. And senators basically saw how effective it had been at blocking civil rights. And they thought, well, hey, this thing could be really useful on my pet issue. And so they started trying it out and experimenting with it on different issues. And it became a tool that was less directly associated with white supremacy and associated with a wider range of issues. The important thing to note, though, is that during this time, it was still used overwhelmingly to block progressive bills from becoming law and advantage conservatives far more than an advantaged progressive. This was sort of a murky time because, you know, the parties were very mixed ideologically. There were conservatives on the Democratic side and liberals on the Republican side. But there have been a number of studies that have been done that showed that overwhelmingly the filibuster was used to block progressive legislation more than it was used to block conservative legislation. So the reason it still exists is that it got this murkier identity. It wasn't explicitly associated with Jim Crow and white supremacy, but it's still just as nefarious because a lot of the things that it blocked have racial justice consequences. It has uh, blocked efforts to close the racial wealth gap. It has blocked efforts to desegregate schools and to end discriminatory zoning policies. So the effects are sort of less explicitly white supremacist and more subtly. But the net effect today continues to be to empower a predominantly white reactionary conservative minority to wield a veto over anything that the majority in our country wants to pass. mention the racial wealth gap. What other examples of things that haven't happened because of the filibuster that you can give us? Give us some examples. Well, recently, bills to end climate change, there was a bill to impose a cap-and-trade system that never uh, came up for a vote because of the threat of a filibuster in the Senate. The public option on Obamacare died because of the filibuster. If Obama had only needed a majority of Democrats to pass Obamacare when he came into office in 2009, it would have looked very different, and it almost certainly would have included a public option. We had 58 seats at the time. The reason that we slimmed down Obamacare was this effort to get 60 votes and to chase Republicans, which didn't actually happen, but that was what caused it to be skinny. The DREAM Act would have passed into law. The Manchin-Toomey background checks bill would have passed the Senate and perhaps passed the House and certainly been signed into law if it made it to Obama's desk. And that's just in the past few years. And then you look at Congress today and you want to talk about the racial justice implications. People are using reconciliation right now, which we can talk about because it's an end run around the filibuster that can be used in certain circumstances. But the problem is that there's no way to get around the filibuster for civil rights bills. And so anything that Biden and Democrats want to pass today that would restore the Voting Rights Act, that would end voter suppression, that would extend statehood to D.C. or Puerto Rico, all of these important critical civil rights issues that we're facing today, none of these things will pass if the filibuster remains in place because there are 50 Democrats in the Senate and you're not going to get 10 Republicans to get you to 60 in for these kinds of issues. It's just simply not going to happen. Adam, can you just quickly run down the reconciliation process for my listeners? Yeah, so reconciliation is sort of a fast track procedure that was invented in the 1970s that's supposed to be narrowly restricted to budgetary items. So anything that meets its narrow restrictions 
gets to go around the filibuster and pass or fail on majority votes all the way. Reconciliation allows for a simple up or down vote on a specific type of legislation if it reduces the budget deficit. Many major bills have been finalized in this way. The problem with it is that the rules that govern what is allowed to use this track are very strict. So it has to have a primary budgetary impact. And the judge of whether it does is one person, the Senate parliamentarian, who gets to rule up or down on whether everything conforms with its rules. So right now, for instance, we're seeing a debate over whether raising the minimum wage can be, but that's a good example because you would think that the minimum wage would have a budgetary impact and it does have some, but it's a very high standard and many things can't clear it. Entire categories of things that will never be able to go through reconciliation include civil rights, gun control, and many climate change solutions will never meet this sort of strict standard. And so all of those things that don't meet reconciliation standards still have to go the regular way, which leaves them vulnerable to being blocked by a filibuster, which they will be if it remains in place. And so if we want to reform our democracy, to fix our democracy, to restore these critical rights issues, the filibuster has to go away or these things simply will not pass. Has it ever been used for the good of the people? There are occasions that Democrats would point to where they say they have blocked bad things that Republicans wanted to do, but there are not that many of them. You look at the Trump administration, And the filibuster didn't help Democrats that much against Trump. Republicans got whatever they wanted to do. They used a couple of these end runs to get around the filibuster, like reconciliation, to pass their tax cuts in 2017. They lowered the threshold on Supreme Court justices to confirm Gorsuch and then Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett. That was after Democrats had lowered it in 2013, but we had kept it in place for Supreme Court justices. And so they lowered it on the Gorsuch nomination and then used a majority vote to get Kavanaugh and Barrett. But there's a structural imbalance here, which is that the filibuster distributes power asymmetrically. It is a tool of obstruction. And so it distributes power more to conservatives who want to stop things than it does to progressives who want to pass things. This isn't a perfect structure. There are some instances where progressives can use it to stop bad things Republicans want to do. But on a structural level, it fundamentally advantages conservatives far more than it advantages Democrats. One example I would point to is there was a very serious effort in 1970 to get rid of the Electoral College. It was a bipartisan effort. The reason both parties wanted to get rid of it was in the 1968 election, George Wallace, the Alabama governor, um, who ran as an independent, came very close to denying Nixon an electoral college majority. Nixon won the popular vote. And if Wallace had performed a little bit stronger, he would have denied Nixon a majority in electoral college, sending it to the House, which could have gotten very complicated. Democrats also wanted to get rid of it because Hubert Humphrey lost to Nixon by about 0.7% in the popular vote, but got creamed in the electoral college. So they had an interest to do it. The amendment to repeal the Electoral College passed the House overwhelmingly. It seemed to have the votes in the Senate. There were more than 30 states that were ready to ratify it. This was a real effort that almost happened, but it was blocked in the Senate by a filibuster. So if you want to talk about consequences for progressives of the filibuster, if it weren't for the filibuster, there's a very good chance that we would have repealed the Electoral College in 1970. So George Bush never would have been president and Donald Trump never would have been president. There are individual cases where the filibuster can be useful to Democrats and progressives. But if you look at the big picture, overwhelmingly, progressives would benefit more by getting rid of it, and conservatives would hate to see us get rid of it. And that's why you see Mitch McConnell working so hard to try to prevent Democrats from getting rid of it. You mentioned Justice Kavanaugh before. You worked for Harry Reid. 
who famously ended the judicial filibuster. So what do you say to people who argue that if that hadn't happened, we wouldn't have Justice Kavanaugh, we wouldn't have Justice Barrett and the huge, colossal reshaping of the federal judiciary under Trump? So to that, I would say, if you think that McConnell would have let Democrats filibuster those justices without getting rid of the filibuster himself. I hear this argument a lot, and it's something that I've encountered a few times. I think it's unlikely, put it that way, that McConnell would have let Democrats filibuster those justices without getting rid of the filibuster himself. And I think he probably would have done it early on. When we got rid of it in 2013, we didn't actually get rid of it on judicial nominations. It was executive branch nominations that were at issue at the time. But when we made the move, we included judicial nominations in the reform so that it was included for all nominees except Supreme Court. So what McConnell would have done was the first time, if we, so if we had left it in place, what McConnell would have done was the first time Democrats filibustered any nominee when Trump came into office, he would have used that as an excuse to go nuclear for all nominees. Are we seeing the end of the filibuster or the beginning of the end? Today's pattern of obstruction, it just isn't normal. It's not what our founders envisioned. Democrats play a little hardball. It's time to change. It's time to change the Senate before this institution becomes obsolete. Blowing up Senate rules to get the president's nominees confirmed. It's really not about the filibuster. Uh, It's another raw exercise of political power to permit the majority to do anything it wants whenever it wants to do it. So take someone like Betsy DeVos, who passed with, I think, 51 or 52 votes. So she would have been blocked because she wouldn't have gotten the 60 votes. So this was early on in the Trump administration. I think McConnell would have used the DeVos nomination to go nuclear himself. And by doing that, he would have gone nuclear for judicial nominees as well, because he would have known they were coming down the pike. And that's how McConnell thinks. And so he would have made sure early that he had gotten rid of the filibuster to clear the way for his precious judges because that was his top priority, confirming federal judges and the Supreme Court justices that he knew were coming down the pike because the seat was still open, um, because he'd held it open under Obama by blocking Garland. If we hadn't gotten rid of the filibuster under Reid, one of the things that it enabled us to do at the time was to confirm a wave of Obama justices from 2013 through 2014. And Obama was on track to have the fewest judges confirmed of any modern president when we got rid of the filibuster. By getting rid of it, we were able to catch him up and get him on par. So there are far more Obama judges serving lifetime appointments on the federal bench today because we got rid of the filibuster. So if we hadn't gotten rid of it, we wouldn't have confirmed all those Obama justices. Those vacancies would have still existed for McConnell and Trump to fill. And then McConnell would have quickly got rid of the filibuster himself early on in 2017 and confirmed all of the judges that Uh, we see today confirmed anyway. This is how it gets to be a structural issue. You just have to calculate that this benefits progressives far more than conservatives, and you just got to make the move. Right now, Joe Manchin might be the most powerful man in America. For my listeners who don't know, he's a moderate senator from West Virginia, a deeply red state who is one of the few Democrats to 
openly oppose ending the filibuster. Was the Senate designed to give one person so much power? It sort of was. I would like to say it wasn't (laughs) because I wish Senator Manchin was not causing such a headache. But it actually was designed to give individual senators more power than they have today and to give leaders less power. In the original Senate, there actually were no party leaders. The Speaker of the House was created by the Constitution, so that position always existed. But the Senate was supposed to be a leaderless institution where everybody had the same amount of power. And so one senator sort of holding things up would be in line with the original vision of the Senate. However, what Manchin is doing is not in the original vision of the Senate because the original vision of the Senate was for it to be a majority rule body. And Manchin is trying to keep it as a supermajority institution. It's ironic because when Manchin argues his position, he claims that he's doing this in the service of Senate tradition and to fulfill the vision of the framers, but that's not the case at all. When it comes to the coronavirus relief checks, when it comes to any legislation moving forward, Democrats will not be able to accomplish it unless they nuke what's referred to as the legislative filibuster. And the person standing in the way right now of doing that is Democratic Senator Joe Manchin, who had a temper tantrum recently when he was asked if he would vote to end the filibuster, given how difficult it is to pass a $15 an hour minimum wage. The framers would have disagreed with Senator Manchin. They would want the Senate to go back to being a place where there could be thorough debate, where there could be thoughtful discussion of issues. But after that debate had run its course, the majority would decide whether to pass or fail a bill and the business of the nation would actually continue to move forward. That's the important thing to understand is that the framers knew that obstruction could be a thing. They saw it happen in their own time. And they said, debate is great. Thoughtful consideration is great, but we have to make it possible for the gears of government to turn and for the business of the nation to be conducted in a reasonably timely fashion. And that's what we've lost sight of today. We privilege this idea of debate and endless discussion of issues, and we privilege obstruction over actually getting things done and passing bipartisan common sense solutions to the massive challenges that we face. The Senate famously thinks of itself as the most deliberative body in the world. I just don't understand. How do we get from Daniel Webster to, like, Tommy Tuberville? And in Daniel Webster's day, everything was majority rule. And so a lot of the great compromises of that era passed by, like, two votes. The Missouri Compromise literally passed by two votes. And we think of these as these grand bipartisan accomplishments. But majority rule enables things to get done. We have plenty of checks and balances in the system. It's still very hard for a bill to become a law. But you got to be able to get things done. In Webster's day, he would give a great speech. But when he was done, he'd sit down and let the bill come up for a vote to pass or fail on a majority vote basis. And that's what we've lost today. We still have the speech part. We still have the obstruction part but we've lost the ability to actually get things done. Is the filibuster the only thing that's keeping the Senate from functioning? No, it's not the only thing. And I discuss some of these other things in the book. The Senate has become a institution that sort of marches in lockstep behind its leaders. I think sometimes that's a good thing because they pass the things that people want them to pass. But I think on balance, it would be a lot better for the institution if it were democratized in a small d sense. I think that there should be more power for individual senators to bring up amendments they want to see votes on, to not have to go through leadership for every little thing. Every minute of the Senate's daily business is controlled by the leaders. And I don't think that's a healthy thing for the institution. 
the influence of money is a massive detriment to the Senate. Most of a senator's time is spent fundraising. It's the single activity that takes up more time than anything else. And I think the best senators try to separate their fundraising interests from their policy interests. And I think some of them are able to do that. But it's very hard to do when you're constantly thinking of how much money you need to raise. The average Senate race today costs over $10 million. And if you need to raise $10 million in relatively small increments, you have to be fundraising constantly. And you're talking to donors constantly. And they're asking you for favors constantly. And it's very hard for that not to creep in and influence the way you think about policy, no matter how hard you try to keep them separate. There are other things that are causing the Senate to be gridlocked and dysfunctional. And I think that there should be solutions to those too. Okay, so how do we fix it? To me, it all starts with the filibuster. And the reason for that is that you can't pass any of the other solutions that you need to fix these other things until you get rid of the filibuster. It's the gateway through which everything else must pass. So campaign finance, for instance, is probably never going to pass because you're never going to get 60 votes for it. And so... If you want to pass a campaign finance law, you probably got to get rid of the filibuster first. The basic structure of the Senate is a problem because it gives California two senators and it gives Wyoming two senators. Of course, Wyoming has 600,000 people and California has 39 million people. But again, to fix that imbalance, one of the things you could do is to extend statehood to places like the District of Columbia, which has a population that is the same size as Wyoming. As we approach July 4th, it is long past time to apply the nation's oldest slogan, no taxation without representation, and the principle of consent of the governed to District of Columbia residents. H.R. 51 would do so, and Congress has both the moral obligation and the constitutional authority to pass the bill. The District of Columbia's population is predominantly black and brown, where Wyoming's population is predominantly white. Wyoming has two senators. D.C. has none. D.C. should get two senators. And that would go a little bit in the direction of restoring fairness to how the Senate is structured and how representation is distributed. But statehood also will not pass until we get rid of the filibuster. You know, I don't want to be very narrowly focused on it, but it really is the thing that prevents everything else from happening. Solutions to climate change are going to be difficult to pass without getting rid of the filibuster. Solutions to income inequality. The list goes on and on. You're not going to get 10 Republicans to cross over and vote with Democrats for very many issues and everything else will die by the filibuster. Are there active, I don't even know, like as an activist, normally I hear more than just, oh, we got to get rid of the filibuster. Like I'll hear about campaigns or orgs that are actually working on things. Like I hear all the time about DC statehood and about what we have to do for the climate and COVID relief. But I don't see any of these orgs actually organizing around getting rid of the filibuster. There's a little bit of organizing going on. There's an organization called Fix Our Senate that is narrowly focused on getting rid of the filibuster, and they're doing great work. But I think that a lot of organizations see it as a gateway to the issues they care about most. And so it is sort of a sidecar that rides along with a lot of other issues. A lot of great organizations out there that are working on climate change or civil rights or income inequality are also asking senators to get rid of the filibuster. I do think that if your listeners decide they want to make a call or to send an email or do something to lobby their senators, it is always good for senators to hear that it is a priority for their constituents to get rid of the filibuster because it is the gateway through which everything else has to pass. This is all very enlightening. Finally, what gives you hope? What gives me hope is that this conversation has advanced very far from when I was in the Senate and when the last reform was made in 2013. Even though there are fewer Democrats in the majority right now, we had majorities of 53, 55, 58 at the time, there were fewer votes for reform then because Democrats still had this idea that 
there was going to be a flourishing of bipartisanship and Republicans were going to come around and they could leave the filibuster in place because the idea of getting to 60 was still a real thing. I think that people have learned a lot in the last few years. And I think things have clarified for them. So I think that we're actually relatively close to having the votes to getting rid of the filibuster. You mentioned Senator Manchin, Senator Cinema. There's a few others who are reticent, but the vast majority of the Democratic caucus wants to get rid of it. And I think that as Republicans continue to obstruct President Biden's agenda, this conversation is going to accelerate and is going to advance very quickly. I think fundamentally, it's probably going to come down to civil rights because President Biden has made very clear that he wants to pass a restored Voting Rights Act and voter suppression and take many other civil rights measures that are critically important. And at the end of the day, he's simply not going to be able to do that unless he gets rid of the filibuster. So what gives me hope is that this is going to come to a head. And I think that the handful of Democratic senators who are reluctant are going to have to make a decision about whether they want to see President Biden succeed or fail. And I think that at the end of the day, they're going to make the right call. Adam, you give me hope. Thank you so much for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. The filibuster is something that gives Mitch McConnell a veto. And that has to stop. We watched him use it during the Obama administration. Uh, And he is already using it now during the Biden administration. We weren't elected to come here and be a debating society that gives Mitch McConnell a veto on every single piece of legislation that is needed to help American families. I believe that as we talk about the pieces that we're trying to move forward, whether it's the minimum wage, whether it's protecting the vote, across America, whether it's anti-corruption, whether it's universal child care and universal college for all of our kids, that more and more people will see what Mitch McConnell is trying to do. More people will see it across the nation and more people will see it in the Senate. I believe we need to get rid of the filibuster now. It is time to get rid of one of the last vestiges of Jim Crow. We can't allow the minority party to prevent the functioning of government or block the will of the American people any longer. And you think this doesn't matter? Well, listen, here's what will never get done unless we eliminate the filibuster. We will never pass the Equal Rights Amendment enact gun violence prevention measures, expand health care access to everyone, forgive student loan debt, fix a broken and racist tax system, criminal justice reform, campaign finance reform, Supreme Court reform. These are the things the American people want. They are also the things the American people elected a unified democratic government to achieve, and they are the things Mitch McConnell and his party will stand in the way of until we remove their ability to obstruct us. So call Joe Manchin, call Kristen Cinema, and call your own senators and demand they do away with this dangerous and harmful practice. We need the Senate to start working again for the American people. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs and music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry.